What Bob, what I plan on teaching on is uh, the first two or three days on the Sabbath. Actually, I'll just go as long as I feel like it's worthwhile. And then, hopefully, the deity of Christ. And if we get through, we may do something else. I think the third subject may be uh, sola scriptura. It's about our sole authority. But I'm not sure we'll get to that. You know, uh, sometimes people don't understand what that sola scriptura is, but it's Latin in the... Uh, the Calvinists really, I mean, the Catholics like to use it more than we do, really, but the Calvinists do, too. The Calvinists want to have a Latin, have this Latin phrase, Sola Scriptura, the Bible or Sola Authority. And they're saying it is, and the Catholics are saying it's not. And what the Catholics will say is that there are three legs of authority that are equal, and that is the Scripture, the leadership, they call it the magisterium, which would be the Pope and perhaps those under him, because he can speak ex cathedra. I'm sorry, I'm not even getting into today's lesson yet. And then tradition. I don't know if we'll get to that, but we'll try to toward the end of the week. What I've got here is all of these lessons that I'm going to do will be from the standpoint of a debate, we might say. My, my debate notes. Uh, and so what I thought I'd do today on the Sabbath question is will in effect be going through my affirmative argument if I were to do a debate with the Sabbatarians. And then what I've got there, some questions for you guys to do homework. I don't know if you guys will be here tomorrow. If you will, you've got homework. It's, I wrote down 15 of them. 15 of the most common arguments that I see the Sabbatarians using. And what I want you to do, I think you can sit in the sheet, I want you to go back and try to come up with how you would answer those arguments for tomorrow. And we'll just go through it. And as I was telling Bob, you guys may give me some ideas of things I hadn't thought of, because, you know, two heads are better than one. Uh, and then we'll go through and try to answer those arguments. But we'll, I think we'll learn a lot more for all participating. So you guys have a little bit to do tomorrow. You remember in the Old Testament that the new law was predicted. Does anybody know, any of you boys know a prominent passage in the Old Testament that predicted that there would come a new law at a certain time? Anybody else remember, maybe can read my mind and think about what I'm thinking about? Jeremiah 31, so let's turn there. And I think it's a significant passage because not only is it predicting a new covenant before the time, but... I may say Paul as the writer of Hebrews. We don't know that. But the writer of Hebrews then quotes it and says, look, what we have here, we're in this new covenant that was predicted long ago by Jeremiah. And so, Mr. Boyd, your first name is Andrew. Andrew, why don't you read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, or just 31 to 32. It's up here on the screen, I think, in the King James Version. Go ahead, Andrew. You'll notice uh, that we probably could have done this if you had your hand in your Bible there and, and compared it to Hebrews 8. This is from the King James Version. Here we have the writer of Hebrews quoting from that. For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, the day is come, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So he's saying this new covenant is here today that was predicted uh, when I say a new law. This is the basis, really, of course, for why the Sabbath is no longer binding. It's because we're under a new covenant. Now I want you to notice I have a passage up here at the top of the screen. When we see the term new covenant or covenant, Many times, and in this case we are, we're including the Ten Commandments here. Notice Deuteronomy 4.13. It says, He declared unto you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, even Ten Commandments. 
So when we're talking about the covenant in this context of one covenant passing away and a new covenant being brought in, the old covenant included the Ten Commandments. Now, where this is important, and we're going to see this in a lot of my charts, and I know you guys have run into this, is when we go to the passages that we normally like to use to show the old covenant is done away, what do Sabbatarians generally, almost without fail, say about those passages? What do they say? Talking about the ceremonial law. They may not use that term, but that is the term they use the most. So what, they have this distinction. They've come up with, in, to me, that they've, they've got in their head that the Ten Commandment law was, quote, the moral law. And everything else in the Old Testament was the ceremonial law. Now, this is specifically what the Seventh-day Adventist Church does. There are other Sabbatarians and other kind of churches that may do it a little differently. They're going to say the Ten Commandments were the moral law. Everything else in the Old Testament is the ceremonial law. So when we see a passage that says, for example, in the Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed, there's made a necessity, a change of the law, they're going to say, oh, that's talking about the ceremonial law. But notice in Jeremiah and Hebrews, when he says that he's going to make a new covenant, if he predicts that, Remember from passages like Deuteronomy 4.13 that this covenant included the Ten Commandments. He said, I declare you this covenant which he commanded you to perform, even Ten Commandments. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 9, 1-4. Now the point we're going to make from this chart, from Hebrews 9, 1-4, and then some other passages on this chart that you'll see. And by the way, I will get you all these notes before the end of the week. You, you feel free to take notes, but I'll, I'll let you have all these charts so that you'll have, have every bit of this. But Hebrews 9, 1 through 4. Uh, Garrett, you want to read that? Hebrews 9, 1 through 4. Now, even the first covenant had regulations and Okay. It says the first covenant, and you can look at my chart and see an abbreviated uh, version of that text. The first covenant had what? And it lists out a number of things, but one of the things the first covenant had were the tables of the covenant. And Garrett, what, what's the table of the covenant? What does that refer to? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. What were they written on? Two tables of stone, am I thinking right? Now remember Deuteronomy 4.13, the Ten Commandments which you wrote upon the tables of stone, which is, here is the covenant. So that's the passage we've already looked over. The covenant includes the Ten Commandments of the tables of stone. Now, here's some passages that we, we should be familiar with from the book of Hebrews showing that this covenant, which we just established, includes the tables of the covenant. So we're not just talking about the ceremonial law, but we're including the Ten Commandments here, the things written on the tables of stone. Let's notice how that Hebrews goes on to say this thing is going away. All right, It's vanishing. Hebrews 8.13, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, that that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So if I tell you I bought a new car... Paul, what does that necessarily imply about my other car that I used to have? It was an old car. I mean, old, my old car. That's the point the writer's making here. When he says a new covenant, he's implying that something is old. And if something is old, that usually means it's ready to be done away with. 
Hebrews 8, 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place should have been sought for the second. So there's a first covenant and a second covenant. One's taking the place of the other, according to that verse. Hebrews 10, 9, talking about Jesus, this is he takes away the first that he may establish the second. So we see these passages at the bottom of the chart. Hebrews saying this old covenant is going away. Not just the ceremonial law, though. It includes the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone. Here's an interesting passage. Uh, Romans 7, 4 through 7. We'll remember that in this first part of Romans, chapter 7, we're talking about the old and the new law. He illustrates the point he's making by talking about uh, uh, marriage in Romans 7, 2 and 3. He's illustrating, and I don't mean that whatever it teaches about marriage is not right. It is right in verses 2 and 3, but he's illustrating the point he's trying to make about the old and new law. So then it's, read Hebrews 7, 4 through 7. Hebrews 7? Romans 7, excuse me. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were accused or aroused by law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldest of the What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I will not have known sin except through the law. For I will not have known covetousness unless the law has said, You shall not covet. Now, why did I read down through verse 7? The reason is for the same, uh, for the same point that we're trying to make, that we're trying to establish what this law includes. Because he clearly says in verse 4, We're dead to the law. He says in verse 6, we're delivered from the law. What does the law include, though, according to verse 7? What did the law teach Paul? Thou shalt not cover, which is part of the Ten Commandments. So, again, we're anticipating the Sabbatarian argument, oh, whenever they see, oh, the law has been done away, it's just a ceremonial law, it's not the Ten Commandments. Here, the law clearly, the law that's being talked about, clearly included the Ten Commandments because this law said, Thou shalt not covet. And that's one of the Ten Commandments. So I have, as I have here on the chart, you're also become dead of the law, delivered from the law, and the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Here's some definitions for the Greek words. According to Mr. Sayer, for this word that's translated dead means to be liberated from the bond of anything. So if we're dead of all, that means we're liberated from it, okay, from the bond of it. So it seems to me it's saying we're not bound by it anymore as far as obligated to keep it. The Greek word uh, translated delivered here, and I'm sure Mr. Walton can tell us what these words are, but I don't know that it's important right now. It means to be severed from or separated from, discharged from, loose from, according to Mr. Thayer. And this happens to be the same word translated abolished in Ephesians 2.15, which I'm sure you are familiar with and we'll get to it in a minute. I have that at the bottom of Romans 7, 1, since we're dead to the law, dead to the law is no, has no more dominion over us. Anytime you have a question or comment, just speak right up. So we mentioned this passage a while ago, Hebrews 7, 12, 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity to change also the law. Now I have at the top here, and we'll, we'll look at this this time, but I might, uh, we won't have to, this is on a number of my charts, we won't have to do it every time. But remember, 
Recall that when the New Testament is discussing the law that we're dead to and delivered from, that law includes the Ten Commandments. And I refer back to Romans 7. Romans 7, we're dead to and delivered from the law, and that law says, Now, we have another passage saying here, the priesthood being changed, there's a mistake made, and that's the also change of the law. So the argument void here is that since the priesthood changed from the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedek priesthood, that that wouldn't be possible unless the law had changed. If we were, with, if we were still under that old law, then we'd still have to have the same priesthood. Y'all follow what I'm saying? And Paul's doing a reverse logic. He says, since we see that the priesthood's changed, that must mean that the law has changed. All of the law. So down in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, it says, verse 18, for there is barely a disannulling of the commandment going before. So this commandment was disannulled. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Better testament, just like new implied Old Testament, a better testament implies one that was not so good, but two different testaments, right? I'm trying to think about that. Let me see. At that time, he's uh, talking about the um, the fact that Jesus and His way and His testament and new law is better. Uh, I mean that. As far as I can remember, that in that whole section there, he's trying to establish that, that the new law is better than the old. And, you know, we have that over and over. I'm, I don't remember the, him accusing them of saying you're trying to uh, go back under the old law, like he does over and over in Galatians. But I, that, my memory could be really bad there. Do you, can you think of a verse right off the No, I'm just, I'm just wondering why the argument has to be made in the context there. Uh, and that's why you talk the argument. Just so I understand what the, the, the I, I'm thinking... Um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but more of a theological uh, argument. In other words, in Romans, he's not necessarily correcting a specific church problem, but he's giving them theology, we might say. The reasons for why we do this and why we do that and the basis behind what we believe. I was thinking more along those lines, but I could be wrong. Compared to 1 Corinthians or Galatians where he's correcting problems and then he brings up... But I'm not probably not near as familiar with Hebrews as you are. So. No, no, I'm just trying to understand uh, from, from a, the point of view of me bringing this argument to them uh, and see what content is. So I'll check. I'll, I'll, I'll just, that's okay. Okay. Now here's another good passage, I believe, in trying to establish that we're not under the Sabbath. So far, the passages we brought up are basically saying the law in general has been done away. And, of course, we've been laboring to show this law included the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath because they want to say it's a ceremony law. Now we're going to turn to a passage that mentions the Sabbath in particular. Colossians 2, 14 through 17. Dan, you want to read that? Colossians 2, 14 through 17. Having one of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he had taken out of the way, having no one to cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers and in public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regard a festival or a new moon or act of Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Yours said something like wiping out the requirements, I think, in verse 14. And the King James says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. What is an ordinance? 
What's an ordinance? What would that word mean? It's a law. But what is that? What is it? what word do we have? Ordinance. What's the what's the basic word there in English? Huh? Or how about ordained? So an ordinance, a city ordinance, is a a law ordained by who? The city, right? A state ordinance is a law ordained by the state. This is an ordinance that was ordained by God, or ordinances that were ordained by God. And it says, his has requirements, wiped out. Mine has blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. So we have some ordinances, some laws ordained by God that are wiped out. And then it, it, it doesn't give us a complete list, but it gives us some examples of these ordinances that were wiped out or blotted out or took out of the way and nailed to the cross. And that's in verse 16. So if, I, if there's a law that says, uh, what was the law they wiped off the books? Well, if there was a law that said out here on Highway 31 that maybe for some temporary period of time because they were doing construction, it was at 35 miles per hour. It's normally at 50, you guys. Out here on 31, right here by the Bible school in the church building. But that law was wiped off the books. That order, then nobody could judge you based upon driving over 35 anymore. But while it was still on the books, you could be judged. I mean, you could get a ticket. So he's saying, since these laws have been wiped away, nobody can judge you. You're not violating the law anymore. And the examples he gives are the meat and the drink. I take it that that's daily offerings that they made every day. The meat and the drink. The respect of a holy day. What would that be? The holy day. The feast. How many yearly feasts were there? Well, I think I thought there were seven. But I don't know for sure. But can we try to name them? The Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, uh, those kind of things we're talking about. I don't remember, but Leviticus 23 lists out a lot of them, maybe even all of them, and tells some of the regulations regarding them. How did these feast days, or how did these seven yearly feasts come about? Oh, yeah. Every year. Right. Every year. Like, turn over, hold your hand there and turn over to Leviticus 23, where I said a bunch of them were mentioned. The seventh day Sabbath, that they had to keep holy and they couldn't work, it came out every week, right, on the seventh day. But look at passages like Leviticus 23-24 to speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. Now many times that's called the Feast of Trumpets. Now what day was it to occur? Seventh month, first day of the month. In our vernacular, that would be, I guess, July 1st, but they had a different calendar. How often would that occur then if, it was to, if they were to do it the first day of the seventh month? Once a year. So you can tell how often it's done. Would it have necessarily, it says it's a Sabbath, would it have necessarily occurred on what we call a Saturday, seventh day of the week? It's a Saturday. On the first day. It's the first day. Just think of July 1st. Does it always fall on a Saturday? No. So this didn't necessarily fall on a Saturday, but it was called a Sabbath, I think, because on that day, even if it fell on a Tuesday, and I'm not saying they used the same terms as we did, that day they could not work. And I think was it uh, uh, Passover, they couldn't even work for seven days, if I'm remembering correctly. But you see, it's the first day of a certain month. That's not necessarily going to be a certain day of the week every time. It's going to be, it'll change. They still could work those days. There were seven of those. That's what the holy days, I believe, here are referring to. Now, we're going to, I think we're going to talk some more about this uh, probably tomorrow. And then you have the Sabbath. 
And so it seems pretty clear to me, and that would be the weekly Sabbath, it seems pretty clear to me that this passage is saying that the Sabbath is no longer binding. I mean, he says, here's some ordinances. They've been blotted out by Jesus, taken out of the way. And when were they taken out of the way, Paul? Right? Says, they were taken away at the cross, nailed to the cross is what the verse is. He says, therefore, don't let, men, let no man judge you with respect to these ordinances. And he gives some examples. It seems to me it's showing clearly these are examples of ordinances that have been done away and nailed to the cross. And one of those specifically mentioned is the Sabbath. And then it goes on to say these are basically were not the substance, but they were the shadow, right? They were the shadow. Normally in the shadow and the substance, the type, the antitype, the figure, the Old Testament almost always is the type, and the New Testament is the antitype, the truth. And that's the same thing here. You know, think of another famous example of a, I'm getting off the subject here, of an antitype, of a type. It's mentioned, it uses those words in the New Testament. No, it uses the word antitype, really, or type. Baptism in 1 Peter 3. The light figure in King James says we're into baptism, but the new King James, I, says, says, I think, says antitype for, for baptism. What was the type then, Garrett? In 1 Peter 3.21, the antitype of baptism, what was the type? The figure. Any, any one of you three boys know that? What was the type that pointed to it? This just helps us understand what a type and antitype is. It was the salvation of Noah and his family through the water or by the water. And why was one a type of the other? I think there were two things in common. They both had water in common and both had a salvation in common. The first one, physical salvation. The second one, spiritual salvation. So they had these two things in common, so one was a type of the other. But anyway, in Colossians 2.17, the Sabbath and other things are said to be a shadow or a type of the substance. Any questions or comments? Now, we mentioned Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 14 through 16. Let's read that. Mr. Greg, do you want to read that? Hebrews, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. 11, verse 12, it's time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So the two things being put together here, boys, was the Jew and the Gentile. And what was keeping them apart? According to this text, what was keeping them apart? That's right. The law was. And why is that? You remember in Romans, I think it's 3, it says, what advantage did the Jew have? Because unto him was committed the oracles of God. This law was given for the Jews to keep. We'll learn more about this as we go. Uh, today, I think. This law was for the Jews. So we, in effect, since the Gentiles weren't required to keep this law, it wasn't for them, this law separated the Jew and Gentile. But what did Jesus do? It says he abolished it in his flesh, this thing that was made them enemies, that kept them apart. What did he abolish? Dennis has already said it. 
the law. It says here in the King James, the law of commandments containing ordinances. So what we see is two ideas, at least the way I'm thinking of the two ideas here. God, Jesus, took away that law at the cross. It says abolishing his flesh. I take it that's talking about his death. This is very parallel to me to Colossians 2, 14 through 17. It says almost the same thing, just in different words. That's why I put the chart right after that one. Very, very similar. Uh, uh, and, and the thing that's under primary consideration here, though, the background of why he's bringing this up is he's trying to show that the Jew and Gentiles are now one. There's no distinction. And the thing that was separating them that had to be taken out of the way was that law. But what was part of that law? Ten Commandments. The Sabbath law. We can see again, if we go back to Romans 7 or any of these other passages, the law that we're dead to and delivered from is the law that said, Thou shalt not covenant. Again, we're just anticipating the Sabbatarian saying, Oh, this is just talking about the ceremonial law. Another passage I like to use in debates with Sabbatarians is Galatians 3, 19 and 24 and 25. Paul, have you read it yet? Read Galatians 3, 19 first. Well, now, you, what version do you have? The New American Standard. Okay. On Galatians 3.19, mine says, When for work within serves the law, it was added because of transgressions. Do you have this phrase, till the seed should come? You don't have that. That's the New American Standard? Does anybody have the Old American Standard, 1901? Uh, I wonder if that's a textual variant that I, I didn't realize was there. Because that's critical to my argument here. Is that phrase, till the seed should come? Which version do you have? Uh, the New King James. Does the New King James have it? Yeah. It should. It, it may be a difference in the text. I wish if I had an old American standard, which Mr. Walter may use. I don't know. Then we could find out easily. But um, Anyway, mine says, wherefore then serves the law? That was, what was the purpose of the law? It was added to cause of transgressions. What does that mean? It was added because of transgression. Yeah. Um, hold on a minute. Let me. Uh, kind of, there's a passage in Romans that says it, 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 it was given to show them what their sin was. Um, what's that? Galatians three nineteen. I'm trying to see if I have a, if I can find that real quick using some of my notes. That's okay right now. I'll, I'll try to get that by tomorrow. But it was added because of transgressions. It was given to show them what sin was. Okay. But then, at least according to King James, it says, how long? It was given till when? Till, what version y'all have? Dennis and Dan. New King James. Till the seed should come. Now that seems to imply, seems to imply that it was given until Christ came, that with the advent of Christ, and some of the first coming, not the second coming, then at that time, the law would go away, right? And I think that's confirmed, and I'm pretty sure it will be confirmed even in the New American Standard, Paul, if you read 24 and 25 for us. Therefore, the law has become our superior, the leader of Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now, the faith is down here, no longer our superior. Well, who's the tutor? What's the tutor, according to the text, Paul? According to the law. 
Right, it says the law was our tutor. And the King James will say schoolmaster. Y'all have a tutor, schoolmaster, what do you have? Y'all have tutor. So the law was the tutor. That's made clear in verse 24, right? And 25 says, after the faith has come, we're no longer under what, Paul? So we're no longer under what? The law. The law was our tutor. Now we're no longer under the tutor. We might think of the tutor as, uh, I've heard some teachers illustrate it as the one that maybe leads them down to the school, gets them to the school. We might think of it as a nanny or somebody who, who, who's hired by a rich family to teach their person, to bring them up, you know. And once they get to a certain age, they're no longer under the tutor. No longer under the law. After that faith has come, in other words, after the faith, the faith, I think it's talking about here, you know, the faith that Paul preached, after that has come, we're no longer under the law. To me, that, again, that's clear. It's showing that, in general, the law has been done away with. And then, in the same, almost in the same context, chapter 5, verse 4. Garrett, you want to read Galatians 5, 4? You have been severed from Christ, who are seeking to justify the law. So are the Seth and the Adventists seeking to be justified by the law? They are. And this says, mine says that Christ has come of no effect unto you. Yours said, Paul said, you are severed from Christ. And then mine will say, you are fallen from grace. So if you try to be justified from the law, you are fallen from grace. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Verse 2 says it's pretty much the same thing. Behold, Paul, I, Paul, say to you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Can you be saved if Christ doesn't profit you? No. The only way we can be saved is if we profit from the death of Christ. So if Christ profits us nothing, we're not going to be saved. This is a beautiful passage to use against the once saved, always saved position, isn't it? But it's showing that these people who try to be justified by the law are Follow from grace. They lose their salvation. Again, it, it's got to be showing that the law is not for us today. Yes, Mr. Gray? So you have become estranged from Christ. You're not living. Sin separates us from Christ, right? So far, most of these arguments are very simple and quick. There's going to be two or three more we try to get to before hours up that a little bit more involved, but these are very simple and quick you can go to to prove that this old law, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath has been done away. Before I move on to some other arguments in that vein, let me talk a little bit about the first day of the week. We're going to come back to some of these other passages, but I, I want to talk about the first day of the week a little bit. Why do we eat the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, Andrew? Okay, do you remember how he commanded it and where? Okay. Garrett? It's about an example um, in Mark 10, I think, the apostles. Okay. Okay, Paul, what do you, you got any ideas? Where that passage is that shows what Garrett's showing about the example, the first day of the week example? Garrett? Acts 20, verse 7. I had to look up to find that and I was just teasing. I, I don't think he looked up. The King James says, Upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them. Now, there's some things on this chart you can read. You'll get the charts later. But 
you'll see some notes here that I use in debating. And this note is, the church I worship with does this very thing. Do you guys do? Of course, I'm challenging them, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist people. Do y'all do this? Do y'all come together the first day of the week to break bread and have preaching? Well, they don't. So there's something different about what they do and what, what we see in the Bible. Now, I don't plan... You, you guys, I don't plan, because I don't know all the answers, to try to go into a long discourse about what examples are binding and what examples are not. I, you know, I, I'm not the expert on that. But I'm pretty confident that this example is binding, and I am very sure that at least some examples are binding. There may be some examples that are not binding. Uh, like, for example, they, they worshipped in the upper room on one or two occasions. And I think that maybe we may have a struggle about trying to determine which examples are binding and which are not. But we don't, just because sometimes we don't know something, we don't throw away what we do know. And what we do know is there are some passages that command us to follow examples. Okay? Like, for example, Philippians 4, verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. That's what Paul said. He says, what you learned and received and heard and seen in me do. So he's saying, I want you to follow my example. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, it says, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Philippians 3, 17, Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 9, To make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Hebrews 6, 12, That ye be followers of them that through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we talk about command, example, and necessary inference. And y'all know about the quote, the new hermeneutic that wants to do away with those last two. But if we believe, if we only had the first hermeneutic that we have to obey command, then we naturally then come to the second hermeneutic, to the second way of establishing authority, because we have commands that we're supposed to follow examples. You follow what I'm saying? We are commanded to follow examples. And here's an example we have of the church. The disciples came together to break bread. If you were to compare this with 1 Corinthians 10, 16, I believe we'll see this is talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, not every time in the New Testament we see the term breaking of bread as it refer to the Lord's Supper. It's a, I would call it a synecdoche, a part standing for the whole. We say on somebody's farm they have 20 head of cattle. We don't just mean a bunch of heads laying out there, right? It's a synecdoche. I think the breaking of bread is a synecdoche normally for eating. In, in this country, uh, we people used to use that. Let's go break bread. We don't do it as much anymore. But sometimes the New Testament refers to eating a common meal. Here, I believe, it's referring to the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians ten sixteen, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So here we have the breaking of bread referring to the Lord's Supper. And we can talk about that more if y'all want to delve into that some more. But I usually wouldn't have to, excuse me, in a debate with the Sabbatarians. Um, now, where you might have to is uh, maybe with the institutional brothers. Delve into that more. And then another passage that talks about the Lord's Supper is the collection. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, does everybody remember what Acts 4 is talking about, 34 and 35? Do you remember they had some people that were in poverty because of a famine, and they sort of pooled the resources and gave out to those in need? It says, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of things that were sold, 
laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according to he had need. You see how the collection was done? What I'm trying to get at with this passage is that if you can't see it first thing in 16, we see that this is a, a, a collection into a common treasury. When they took up the money or whatever they had, they laid it at the apostles' feet, they put it into a common treasury. And it's commanded here to be done on the first day of the week. So in Acts 20, verse 7, it doesn't say they ate the Lord's Supper on the Sabbath. In 1 Corinthians 16, it doesn't say they took up the collection on the Sabbath. It says on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. This is important in a debate with the Sabbatarians. Yeah, well, of course, they, most denominations take the collection just about any time they get a chance, right? But they're sure to do it on their, on their seventh day of the week service. And they, if they ever eat the Lord's Supper, which I think is once a year maybe, I think they do it on Saturday. Um, let's move on. We, we, now, I said a while ago that some of these arguments are very quick. We've been through a lot of the quick ones. Second Corinthians 3, I believe, is just as strong as some of the arguments we've made. But it takes a little bit more time to develop. Okay, so in a debate, you have a lack of time. Sometimes I don't really get to this one, even though I think it's a very strong argument. Because I can't make the argument in two minutes. You follow what I'm saying? But once we go through it, you, I believe you'll see how strong it is. We've talked about how almost all the passages we've been through so far mention the law in general. We had one that mentioned the Sabbath. This one is sort of in between in specificity. It doesn't mention the law in general. It doesn't mention the Sabbath in particular, but it, it talks about the Ten Commandments in particular. So let's everybody turn to 2 Corinthians 3. Okay, we're going to, I guess we'll just read the whole chapter. What we're going to do, Andrew, you want to read this? What version do you have? I have the... Okay, it'll probably, hopefully the terms will be similar enough that I can identify them. But what we're going to do, there's a contrast going on in 2 Corinthians 3. What we're going to do is Andrew reads, we're going to put... You'll see as I go along, and I think all of you are familiar with the passage, so you know what I'm talking about. We're going to put all the terms that are spoken of in a negative light on the left side. That's one part of the contrast. And the other, the positive part of the contrast, we're going to put on the other side. Okay? So start reading verse 1 and just uh, go on down through there, Andrew. And, every now, and then I might stop you every now and then and point out what we're doing with this chart here. How we're going to show what Paul's doing in his contrast. Do we begin to condemn ourselves, or do we need, as some other apostles of condemnation to you, or letters of condemnation from you? You are our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an apostle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone. Not in tables of flesh, that is, of the heart. Okay, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Okay, keep going, Andrew. And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are significant of ourselves to think of anything and things from ourselves, but our significance is from God. Through all sufficiency, I think. Go ahead. Who also made a position as minister of the New Covenant. Okay. Mine has New Testament. Yours has New Covenant. Okay, we're going to put that on the right side. We'll see that later when we get to verse 14, it'll use the term Old Testament in contrast to that. Keep going, Andrew. Who 
Not of a letter, but of a spirit. Not of a letter, but of a spirit. You see the contrast you keep doing? Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Keep going, Andrew. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Okay, Andrew. The ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. So the children of Israel cannot look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away. How long will the ministry of the Spirit be more glory? Okay, so notice in the, that uh, ministry of death was mentioned in verse 7. In, the op- in opposition to that, he said ministration of the Spirit, verse 8. That's the one put in the positive light. Okay. For the ministry of our condemnation has glory. The ministry of righteousness is peace, much more in glory. So the ministration of condemnation has glory, but as opposed to that, the ministration of righteousness exceeds that in glory. For even though it was made glorious, it had no glory in respect, because of the glory that it does. For that is that way, the glorious that remains is much more glorious. So we skip verse 7, we have the term done away, and now we say that which is done away, as opposed to that which remaineth. Okay? Therefore, since we have such hope, we use boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who could have bellowed up his face, but the children of Israel could not go steadily at the end of what was passing away. And mine has abolished there. Weir's that's passing away. Okay. But their minds were blind. For until this day, the things that remain unlimited in the reading of the Old Testament because the bell was taken away from Christ. Here's where we have it identified. The left side is the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament. On the right side, done away in Christ. Keep going, Andrew. The end of this day, when Moses is read, a bell lies in my heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the bell is taken away. Okay, that, that's good enough. So we have taken away here on the left side. I think the only one I didn't mention was verse 7, and that was a pretty important one. Talk about the ministration of death. It says it's written and engraved in stone. Does that remind us of anything? What? Tables of stone that we talked about before. What was written and engraved in stone? Ten Commandments. So now let's look at this contrast after we've got a synopsis here. On the left side, the one that was spoken of in a negative light, and again, we're not saying that when I say a negative light, we're not saying that that law, that it was really bad. It did what God intended it to do. He did not intend for it to last forever. But here Paul is speaking of it in a negative light, to, we'll say to brag on the New Testament in, in contrast to that. So we have the Old Testament. We have something written and engraved in stone. So we can't say this is just a ceremonial law, can we, Mr. Greg? This is something written and engraved in stone. It's tables of stone, not of a letter, for the letter killeth. Now remember this when your denominational friends want to say, well, we go by the spirit of the law, not the letter. They're using our vernacular of the United States and probably Canada too. We talk about the, the spirit of the law. We mean, well, it's sort of okay to violate the letter of the law the, what it says exactly, as long as you are, you know, as long as you're doing what it was intended. Okay. But that's really not what, that, that, we may use it that way now, but that's really not what he's talking about here. He doesn't mean the letter, meaning if you just go by the law of God perfectly, that's going to kill you. He's not talking about that. The letter here refers to the Old Testament. The Spirit refers to the New Testament. That's the only thing that's going on here with that contrast. It's called administration of death. It brought about death, the administration of the Spirit, the New Testament. The Old Testament, or the thing written in graven stones, is called the administration of condemnation. 
The New Testament is called the ministration of righteousness. Here's all the terms that were on the left side that shows that the things written engraved in stone, the Old Testament, on the tables of stone, that these things have been done away. In verse 7 it says it's done away. Verse 11, that which is done away. Verse 13, it's abolished, done away in Christ, and taken away as opposed to the New Testament which remains. Now, as I said, in a debate it would be hard to go through all that. You need to just about read the whole chapter unless you expect them to take your word for all these terms up here. But as you see, to me, as you, if you list all the terms and, put the, and show the compare, comparison and contrast, to me it makes a pretty uh, effective argument in showing that the Sabbath, the Ten Commandments, can be done away. It's a little more specific than just saying the law because the thing written and engraved in stones is actually mentioned here. And that can only be the Ten Commandments. Now, let's just look at it, before we leave this argument, look at it quickly one more time. I've taken some of the things off the chart that I've left some. Here we have the Old Testament, tables of stone, written engraved in stones, done away, done away, abolished, done away in Christ, taken away, as opposed to the New Testament, which remains. Now, notice in particular, in verse 7, here's the quote from the King James Version. It says, that written engraved in stones was glorious. Doesn't it say that? Then later in verse 11 it says, that which is done away was glorious. So you get that? The thing written in graven stones was glorious. That which is done away was glorious. So really we have that written in graven stones equated with, with that which is done away. The thing that was written in graven stones is done away. If you take time to study the context of 2 Corinthians 3, that's the conclusion you'll come to. It shows specifically that the Ten Commandments have been done away. Which, as you know, in talking with your neighbor, they're going to find that, they're going to, they'll be incredulous if you tell them the Ten Commandments are going to be done away. We'll talk about it in a minute. So immediately think, you mean you can kill and steal today? We'll talk about that in a moment. But that's because it's just been banged in their head. You know, if you, even if you watch a good TV show, maybe they go into a church and you'll see the Ten Commandments up there. And we had a, a judge here in Alabama, Judge Roy Moore, that got famous because he wouldn't take down the Ten Commandments from his courtroom. It's been engraved in the denominational person's head that Ten Commandments, we've got to do those. We don't have to do anything else. We've got to do those Ten Commandments. And so they find it hard to believe that you would say the Ten Commandments have, have been done away. And the Sabbatarians, when I debated, really find it hard to believe that I would say that. Here's something that uh, I think is important to understand in this whole scenario, and that is, really, Sabbath law was only for the Jews to start with. Last I checked, all of us in here are Gentiles, right? And when I debate, as far as I know, everybody in the audience, everybody that comes is a Gentile. I I don't recall ever remember running into a Jew. Uh, But the Sabbath law was only for the Jews to start with. It never was for the Gentiles. So again, recall that when you're talking about the covenant, you're including the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4.13, he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even Ten Commandments. Now here we're leading up to when the Sabbath law was first given in Exodus 20. I think we have that repeated. Where is it Deuteronomy where it's repeated? Maybe in Deuteronomy 5. I'm not sure. But Exodus 19, it says, The Lord God called unto him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Therefore, you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. You should be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. You remember the basic idea in Exodus 19 is, is that if you will do what I say, keep my covenant, then you'll be my people and I'll bless you. And there were land promises and there were other things like that. That was the covenant. And of course, we see that it includes the Ten Commandments. And 
He goes on in what, what they were supposed to do. What, what was their end of the bargain? Well, he goes into the Ten Commandments. One of them is remember the Sabbath day. Who is he making this covenant with, though? The children of Israel, the ones that he brought out of Egypt on eagle's wings. Now, that never applied to our, our uh, ancestors, did it? They were never, my ancestors were never brought out of Egypt, period. Now, let's confirm that with some other passages here. Exodus 31, 13, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So he's talking to who in this verse? The children of Israel in Exodus 31, 13. He says, A sign between me and you. That doesn't seem to include the Gentiles, does it? As we go on, I think it will be made clearer. Exodus 31, 16 and 17, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel. Who was the Sabbath between then? That's what it says. Ezekiel 20, 10 and 12, I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them. So it was a sign between the Sabbath was, a sign between God and the people he brought out of Egypt. That was the Israelites only, not the, not the Gentiles. Deuteronomy 5.15, Remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out then. Therefore the Lord commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Not only was it a sign between God and the children of Israel, the reason he gave them the Sabbath, according to this, notice the word therefore, is because he brought them out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt, therefore I'm giving you the Sabbath. That does not apply to the Gentiles. We weren't brought out of Egypt. So if we can get the people we're talking to, and of course what we're really talking about is going out and trying to teach our neighbor, right? That's what we're all interested in doing. If we're talking to a person that's wondering about the Sabbath or Seventh-day Adventist or whatever we're talking to, if we can get them to understand from the Old Testament that the Sabbath law was really only for the Jews to start with, then I think we'll go a long way toward helping to convince them that it's not for us today. Because they think it was just for everybody. That, that pretty much most people think the Old Testament was for everybody back then. And uh, Jew and Gentile alike, they don't understand the distinction and there's just been a, a new law attached on there. But they fail to realize that little difference, that the old law was never for the Gentiles. Zero on the five three, the Lord did not make a covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Mm-hmm. And that's, I have another chart that it goes into showing when the Sabbath, uh, and it, we'll get into that in the next few days. I think one of the questions I give you has something to do with that is about when was the Sabbath given? Because the Seventh Adventist people want to make a big deal that it was given first in Genesis 2, 2 and 3. Therefore, we still have to keep it today. I think you have the reference right. But that passage, Mr. Gregg showed, that it didn't start in Genesis. Did he give it to their fathers? Not to their fathers. I think that's some of the Jewish fathers. Right, so it didn't start back in Genesis. We'll talk about that if we, if we have time to get to that question. I hope we do. Notice, suppose you were talking to a person who insisted on keeping the Sabbath. Here's another thing you might do. Try to get him to see what being consistent would mean if you're going to be a Sabbath keeper. Because you remember Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man that is circumcised is a debtor to do the whole law. That, that's a general rule that applies anytime. If you're amenable to one law, one rule in a law, you're amenable to the whole thing. The same is true with the United States law. It's true with the New Testament law. Uh, 
James 2.10 makes it clear that if you violate one point, you're guilty of all. And he, he immediately says this is true of the law that said don't commit adultery, you know, the Old Testament law. And then he says it's also true of the law of liberty, the New Testament law. That principle applies to any law. So the same would be true about, this, true about circumcision here. If you still, if you're going by that and you have to be bound by that, you're bound by the whole law. The same thing would apply to Sabbath. So here's some of the things they had to do, actually, in the Old Testament. First of all, the one that they know about is they're not supposed to work, right? That's the one that Seth Adams usually know about. They're not supposed to work. But Exodus 35, verse 3, they were not to have a fire. Exodus 16, 23, no cooking. You remember they were to cook everything they needed on the sixth day, so they wouldn't have to cook on the seventh. No carrying of a burden and breaking the Sabbath. Let's go on with this point. For I testify again, every man that is circumcised is a debtor to the whole law. Well, let's think of some other laws. The last chart had to do with how do you keep the Sabbath. Well, they don't keep those laws. Like, they don't keep the Sabbath the way they did in the Old Testament, did they? What about these other laws? Circumcision. If one law is still binding, the whole law would still be binding. The new moon observance, feast of unleavened bread, feast of weeks or Pentecost, feast of trumpets, day of atonement, feast of tabernacles. There's a, how many? We, I wonder if there were seven of them. I got at least five of them that's in there. The Sabbath year, year, which happened, was it once every seven years they were supposed to uh, maybe leave their land dormant and give it rest? Year of Jubilee was every 50 years, I believe. The laws of animal sacrifice and offerings, Levitical priesthood, many, many other laws that they don't keep, but if, they're, you know, if they were consistent, they'd have to keep all the law, as Galatians 5.3 says. Let's try one more chart. This is another one. It takes more time. I don't see Greg here yet. And that's Galatians chapter 4. Let's try to go through this real quickly, and y'all can study this later, get more in context. There's, a, there's an analogy here. Uh, I think Paul calls it an allegory. I guess it would be the same thing. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Let's just read this. He says, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Okay? So we can say that to the Sabbatarians. They desire to be under the law. Let's hear what the law has to say. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman who was born after the flesh. That would be Ishmael. So we have Isaac and Ishmael. But he of the free woman was by promise. He promised Isaac through Sarah. Which things are an allegory, or we might say an analogy. But these are the two covenants. So we have an allegory here. It says the one from Mount Sinai. What, what covenant would that be, Paul? The one from Mount Sinai. Yep, the law of Moses, which generously bondage, which is Hagar. So actually she wasn't a wife. She was a... Uh, uh, yeah, but she, uh, was she... Uh, what's the other kind of almost a wife called? Concubine. Was she a concubine? I don't remember for sure. But anyway, Hagar represents what covenant? The old law. And I guess it's probably talking about her son, too. It says, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So we have an allegory and analogy. And what we really have is Hagar, and perhaps her son represent the old covenant. And uh, Isaac, I mean, uh, Sarah and Isaac represent the new covenant. The bondwoman Hagar represents the first covenant from Mount Sinai. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than, than she which hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Okay, so he's bringing in Isaac here. 
But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what says the scripture, here's something key, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Cast out the bondwoman, that's my comment. What is the bondwoman representing here? That's right, the covenant. Remember, these are the two covenants. The bondwoman represents, it says here, Hagar is Mount, she's the bondwoman, she's Mount Sinai. She represents the law from Mount Sinai, that covenant. It says, cast her out. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman of the free. So we're under the new law. And he says, cast out the old law through analogy or through an allegory. Do y'all follow that? Again, I usually don't use that in debate, even though I think it's a very strong argument, but because it takes, you have to read the whole chapter, and, and they're really not, most people are that aren't familiar with the Bible won't understand it on the first reading, so I just don't go to it. But since we have more time here, and you guys are familiar with the text, I think it is a pretty strong argument. That's really strong. I'll stop right there. Uh, you are, we're supposed to have another class at 430. I appreciate getting the opportunity and y'all coming. Yes, Dan. Uh, just thinking what you just had here. What, what would be the how is it convinced the followers? I don't know how large the church of the Seventh-day Adventists is, how many followers they have or members they have. But what would be their motive for becoming a member of this knowing it? Like they're, they're, they're basically putting on themselves a great burden. Uh, is it because they can tell themselves, well, if I do this, 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 I have salvation? So they're entirely depending on work to be for their salvation? Would that be their motive for this? Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about the motive. The, the means by which they use to convert people, and this really doesn't touch on the motive, is that they'll, the denom- they pray on what the denominational people are teaching, though the denominational people don't believe you have to keep the Sabbath. But the denominational people have the Ten Commandments up in their church buildings and everything. And they'll say, look, y'all believe in keeping every one of these except the Sabbath. And, and they use that pretty effectively with, with people to convert them because, you know, and it's because denominational people aren't teaching it right. You know? Yeah, they're saying that Ten Commandments are still binding. Yeah, but then they might say something like Sunday, the first is the, uh, is the, what is it called, the New, uh, New Testament Sabbath? Christian, Christian Sabbath. <clears throat> and so they just point out the fact that everybody, you're keeping all those commandments but one. That's why, why they pray on them. So I don't know about the motives, but we'll talk about some of those arguments that they made uh, in the next day or two, depending on how long it takes us to get through.